My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. feels different to be in the space of story. And so that's why I just am so adamant that story is a powerful tool to think about talking about colonization and decolonization because it asks us to step into a circle with other human beings and to listen to one another. That's the voice of Gladys Rowe. She Teddy Zagay-Gebra-Hewitt and Liz Carlson-Menathera are today's guests on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Gladys Rowe is a Meshkego Inanu, or Swampy Cree person, originally from Fox Lake Cree Nation in Treaty 5 territory in northern Manitoba. She currently lives on the lands of the Duwamish and Suquamish nations just outside of Seattle, Washington. Teddy Zagay-Gebra-Hewitt is a black Ethiopian-Greek-Canadian settler living in Winnipeg, Manitoba on Treaty 1 territory and the homeland of the Métis people. Liz Carlson Manathera is a white settler who currently lives on Anishinaabeaki in Sudbury, Ontario, on lands covered by the Robinson-Huron Treaty of 1850. More than a decade ago, all three of them lived in Winnipeg. Carlson Manathera was a doctoral student in social work whose research focused on what white settlers like herself could be doing to change their understandings and their ways of being and doing in the world to move towards decolonization. As part of that work, she was doing lots of interviews with a wide range of people who had all sorts of relevant lived experience and expertise. One of the members of her supervisory committee challenged her to go beyond just writing up her findings in standard scholarly ways and to use those interviews as the basis of a film project that would be useful in classrooms and communities to catalyze conversation, learning, and change. Carlson Manathera had no experience whatsoever with film, so she started looking around for collaborators. At the time, Zagay Gebra Hewitt was a fledgling anti-racist and anti-capitalist activist, and he was finishing a BA with a major in film studies. One of Carlson Manathera's emails reached his inbox, and he got in touch and got involved. Rowe was in the early stages of an interdisciplinary PhD in social work, indigenous studies, and English film and theater, and she'd already been talking about related issues with Carlson Manathera, so she eagerly said yes when asked if she wanted to be part of the project. They decided that storytelling would be central to their approach. In fact, they named the project Stories of Decolonization. The idea was that storytelling differs in important ways from approaches that, for instance, focus just on dry facts or on intellectual arguments. At its best, storytelling invites people in and can be a powerful way to relate ideas, knowledge, and experiences while diffusing defensiveness and also connecting and communicating in more emotional, embodied, and holistic modes. The three have been very deliberate about creating ways of work that reflect, as best they can, the larger vision of transformed relations at the heart of the project. While Zagigebra Hewitt does the bulk of the technical side of the editing, most of the rest of the work on the project is shared, and they make decisions by consensus. 
and they have taken great care in using a much more active and participatory approach to consent with interview participants than the industry standard sign a form and you're done model. Their aim has been to create something nuanced and thoughtful that could speak to a very broad public, especially to people who have never really thought about colonization and decolonization. They realized early on that presenting the ideas from Carlson Manathera's dissertation interviews on their own might be inaccessible. So they decided to expand the project from one film to three. At each step, they've been doing many additional interviews, and each film has an associated curriculum guide. The first two films lay the groundwork. Stories of Decolonization, Land, Dispossession, and Settlement came out in 2016, and Stories of Decolonization, Decolonial Relations was launched in June of this year. The final film, which they'll start working on soon, will focus on questions of decolonial action. The three are quite pleased with how the films have been taken up so far. They've been watched fairly widely online, and their use in classrooms and community events has sparked just the kinds of conversations that they'd hoped. At the same time, Carlson Manathera is clear that, quote, just learning isn't enough, end quote. And they hope that the learning people do from the films can be part of broader processes of building communities of resistance and of taking action together. I speak with Roe, Zagay Geber Hewitt, and Carlson Manathera about the Stories of Decolonization film project. Don't say my name is Gladys Roe. I am a Mishkego in a new swampy Cree person who also has ancestors from Ireland, Norway, Ukraine, and England. And I'm right now living on the lands of the Duwamish and Suquamish nations just outside of Seattle, Washington. But originally I'm from Fox Lake Cree Nation, which is Treaty 5 Northern Manitoba Territory, and have also lived in Winnipeg for many, many years, which is where we all met. I'm Teddy Zagigabrihuat, and I'm a Black, Ethiopian, Greek, Canadian settler living in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is Treaty 1 territory and the homeland of the Métis. And I, I'm a filmmaker on the Stories of Decolonization project. And I'm Liz Carlson Manathera. I'm here on Anishinaabe Aki, which are Anishinaabe lands in the Robinson-Huron Treaty of 1850 territory. I'm a white settler, and I am a faculty member at Laurentian University. The Stories of Decolonization film project came together as an opportunity for people to engage with content around the colonization process in Canada and really thinking about what that means for the current circumstances that we're in and how we might consider working towards this concept or vision that we call decolonization. And so the project itself is a series of films that has accompanying curriculum guides in order to support this deep reflection and contemplation about some of the topics that we touch on. We have two films that are now out within this project with the intention of a third coming up in the future. What can you say in broad terms about the need for a project like this, about the starting point around these issues for the people that you're trying to reach with the films? For me, the project is about providing a learning opportunity for the Canadian public in general. Often people that have had very little exposure to an understanding of how colonialism has unfolded in Canada and how those structures continue to be present within Canada, and then kind of thinking about how can they place themselves within that and what does that mean for going forward and how to work to change those structures. So it's really aimed at a really basic level as far as Canadians who haven't really been exposed to this knowledge very much. 
But we hope that even people who have a fair bit of learning will also get something from the project. One of the ways that we try to provide an opportunity for people to become inspired to learn more is through personal stories. And so the project is based on interviews with people about their own lives and their own learnings about colonialism and decolonization and the role of their families within that and everything. We feel that connecting with stories is a really powerful way to help people engage and become interested in learning. You know, I was teaching in the Faculty of Social Work, and as early as 2009, I would get into social work classrooms, fourth-year students who were just about to finish their degree, taking the course that I was teaching about Indigenous peoples and social work practice, and they had not heard of residential schools. And so there's such a stark need for materials to use in classrooms to make sure that people had some understanding and some confidence in this area. And the question you asked made me think about my grandpa on my mom's side. So my grandpa is a Ukrainian farmer in Alberta. And as the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was coming out and there was more media and more stories being shared about residential schools in Canada, he started to have conversations around the table with me that he couldn't fathom how these things were happening right in front of him because he was actually working with people in Fox Lake Cree Nation in Northern Manitoba. So, you know, people who he worked with, who he was friends with, it shocked him that they had experienced going to residential schools. We continue to have really great conversations about how this kind of hiddenness of experiences can happen within Canadian society and the ignorance and the perpetuation of a particular myth of what it means to be Canadian can happen. And it's through stories. It's through what we're told. It's through media. It's through curriculum. It's through stories that are passed down in generations in families. It's through socialization processes. And so what can we do to disrupt that narrative that is so pervasive about what it means to be Canadian because that narrative is really detrimental to the relationships that we could have with one another. And so I also recognize that in telling different kinds of stories, there needs to be a space that's created where those stories might be able to be received as well in a way where defenses don't immediately come up. And so that was one of the things that we talked about so much in the development of both films is how to tell these stories in a way where they can reach people who these stories might not have reached before to offer potentially an aha moment or an in to where new kinds of conversations can happen like the ones that I had with my grandfather. I think one of the things that we really tried to do was hold on to complex and nuanced aspects of this discussion. So holding on to nuance and trying to include conversation that isn't only about introducing an idea, thinking about who would be watching this, who would be learning from it, and what they would get out of it. We really try to be attentive to having a lot of voices and stories come from people in a lot of different social locations and not necessarily collapse a conversation or a complexity into something that was oversimplified and instead trying to make space for people to be able to entertain and think and contemplate and reflect on multiple sides of something that ultimately people have to bring back into their own lives and make very personal changes with that kind of knowledge. Walk listeners through the doing of this project and your process. 
as I was working on my dissertation, which is for white settlers such as myself, kind of thinking about how can I, how can other white settlers move towards decolonization, change their understanding, their ways of being and doing in the world. And one of my committee members, Yvonne Pompana, had challenged me and said, would you think about creating a film based on the work that you're doing? Because she had felt that it would be a very useful tool in the social work classroom. I felt like it was really important to listen to what she had to say. And so that was when I just kind of looked up and I said, well, I have no idea, no experience in filmmaking, no budget, no anything. How do I get started? One of the answers that I got at the time was maybe you should try contacting people at local universities to see if there are any film students that might be interested in working with you on a project like this. So that's how an email reached Teddy. I came into the project both with a beginner's activist background with anti-racism and anti-police brutality as the starting point and feminism. And I was also a film student at the time. I was in the process of finishing a Bachelor of Arts with a major in film studies. I was working at the University of Manitoba in a contract position at the Center for Creative Writing and Oral Culture. And that center at the University of Manitoba really contributed so much to this project and let us borrow a bunch of film equipment and provided a whole bunch of in-kind support in that kind of a way. Like Liz, I did not have any experience in filmmaking prior to this project. And really, the reason why I became involved was because I was starting to move into a PhD. It was an interdisciplinary PhD in social work, Indigenous studies, and English film and theatre. And I was wanting to incorporate film as a mechanism to tell the story of my dissertation. And so I was exploring this medium. I took an introductory course in filmmaking and was having conversations with Liz about wanting to do this work. And, you know, Liz was looking for people to work on this project and she had already connected with Teddy and asked if I would be interested to come along as well. We committed to filming all of the interviews that Liz was doing for her research and then going back after the dissertation, after the interviews and asking if we could use those interviews as a part of this film project. But in that filming process, in sitting and listening to hours of stories told by people doing some really deep and important work in their own personal and professional journeys towards decolonization, we realized that general Canadian public might not be ready to hear those stories yet because we were missing some of the steps. And some of the steps that we were missing were some really foundational understandings about like, what is this thing called colonization? And really trying to shatter some of the discourse that was happening that says, like, colonization is over. It doesn't exist. It was history. We're here. We're now. We're in the present. And so some of the ideas that we wanted to talk about as we sat down to think about, like, how do we get people from no understanding or very little understanding or a distorted understanding to a space where they're ready to hear these stories that were shared as a result of Liz's dissertation? And so getting people from that A to that B resulted in these first two films that we have on our website. It was providing that foundational knowledge that people need to have in order to then move into and engage with those deeper conversations that people within Liz's dissertation research were having. To do that, we really sat down and said, okay, what do people need to know and how do we get them there? And let's start to think about some of the questions that we can ask because we knew we wanted to interview community members. We knew we wanted to have an interview-based project. 
So we brainstormed, I think it was like four questions that we wanted to ask. And we started to invite people in the community who were thinking about colonization and decolonization into interviews. We started off with like maybe 15 people in addition to the ones that we filmed for Liz's dissertation. And so really wanting to build that foundational knowledge. As a result, I don't know how many hundreds of hours of footage we have, but like so much amazing footage of people sharing their stories about their understanding and building awareness of colonization, how colonization plays out in our lives today and every day, what it looks like, and then how people are thinking about and working towards decolonization. When we finished the first film, we were able to make an assessment of what things were like at that time, where conversations were, how we wanted to go forward and further with some of the things that we brought up in the first film. And so we had another set of supplemental interviews that we did after we completed the first film. So the second film, which is the last film that we made up to right now, uses footage that was from the dissertation the first round of supplementary interviews, and also was from a second round of additional interviews that we selected very particularly to both update and fill gaps. We also had multiple occasions over the duration of the two projects to film additional B-roll shots, and we reached additional sources of footage that other people made, whether it was archival or reaching out to people who had personal collections. After we had so many hundreds of hours of interview footage, the process of how to form that into a film was really laborious, like so many hours of work on our parts, thinking about what are the key messages that we'd like to see come out, thinking about how the flow of the film would go, the arc and kind of the storyline, what kind of messages did we want to see happen towards the end to leave people with. That process took years for both films. That was a lot of work and a lot of thinking and a lot of conversations, making all of those decisions together in a collaborative way. Teddy is usually the one sitting at the computer and actually putting things in sequence, but the decisions are made together. One of the other features of the film project that I think is sort of unique is that it's a very collaborative project. My understanding is that in a lot of film work, there are very specific roles. But in our project, we make all the decisions together and we do a lot of the tasks all together. There are some areas around the actual sitting down with the computer and doing the editing where Teddy has taken the lead. But for the most part, we all do most of the roles. We work together. Everything is decided together. So we like to think about how the way that we interact with each other as filmmakers and the way that we work together is in a way practicing those ideas of relational decolonization. We had a consensus approach when we were working on things, but we also worked really hard to make sure that the participants who were involved consented at many points of the process. Very early on, we were looking at a standard film contract, which is like, uh, this kind of robs people of too much power, <laughs> you know? But yeah, we had this unique consent process with the people who shared their stories with us. It wasn't just getting their permission at the time of recording. It was showing them drafts. It was showing them their own clips. It was showing them their clips in context. It was giving people the chance to, without any pressure or questions asked, revoke their consent any point in that early process. 
we really had a long discussion about ethics. And I think it really relates to the principle of relational accountability, which for me is part of that, like moving towards a decolonial process is thinking about the accountabilities that we hold with one another and what it means to share your story with someone and to have that accountability that that story will be held and treated in a good way. For me, that's really the centrality of it. What is the relational accountability that we hold to the people who have shared so generously their experiences and their times? And how are we going to continue to honor those stories in a good way? And that means that people have power and decision making over, you know, the framing of what they've offered us. And if that story isn't true for them any longer to be able to say, I don't really want that to be included in the second film. Journeys change. Talk more about why you feel it's valuable to approach questions of colonization and decolonization through stories. For me, it's about creating a space for people to relate to one another. There's so many opportunities within our society today to depersonalize, to create boundaries around our lives where we don't have to interact with one another or in ways that make us uncomfortable or cause discomfort to what it is we know or what it is we've experienced to be true. And I think offering a way to relate to one another that repersonalizes, that offers new insights that we might not have heard or experienced before. Sharing stories of our experiences, sharing stories of our hopes, sharing stories of what we see for the future. I think it feels different to be in the space of story. It's such a powerful medium for expressing ideas and concepts and experiences in a way that potentially we can relate to, relate to one another. And so that's why I just am so adamant that story is a powerful tool to think about talking about colonization and decolonization because it asks us to step into a circle with other human beings and to listen to one another. You can take courses about colonialism and decolonization, and sometimes those are very literature-based. You know, you're reading books, you're reading articles, and sometimes some of those articles do a really good job of reaching us at a deeper level, but oftentimes it kind of gets stuck in the intellectual level. And one of the things that we've really appreciated about working with story is that it can bring into like a more holistic kind of learning So that as Gladys said, you're relating, you're working with information at that intellectual level, but also at an emotional level, the relational level. And I think it leads to more holistic learning and also more compelling learning that really has more potential to reach people. The other thing that we've considered is the role of the arts and the role of film in doing that work as well, in relating on a more emotional level, more holistic level, in order to have that deeper learning, that, you know, heart level learning. When we were doing the interviews, for the interviews that I was present for, when I was listening to what people had to say, I felt like that experience was very transformative for me. And just like Liz was saying right now, you're not just coming to that conclusion in words, you're feeling it. And you leave that experience with, at the very least, a potential to change in a way that the way that that resonated with you has that much more voltage 
to make things different than the inertia that your life is already in because people have their own worldviews, people have their own experiences, and we're making sense of the world as we go. But story has a way of sort of interfering and intercepting and opening up new possibilities. And I think that is a powerful thing to tap into. I'm not trying to say that having an emotional experience or listening to a story is a substitute for other kinds of actions, because we need a whole bunch of different kinds of actions to make change. But there already are stories, there already are ideas, and those are affecting how we make choices in this world. And if we don't engage with that level of discourse or stories or socialization, we're really not tapping into the thing that people are doing, which is making sense of the world as they go. And the stories that are mainstream that reinforce oppression and colonialism are not good enough, obviously. So we need something better. And I think that we have to build our own stories up ourselves and not just expect to have something imposed from up high or something like that. It has to really be a collective process where we have relationships and we build relationships and we grow in relationships. And crucially for what we're talking about, we got to change the existing dynamic of the relationships. For me, this is only one part of change. I do think that as people move towards taking more and more decolonial actions and engaging in more and more decolonial transformations, that having more knowledge really does help deepen the process and helps people as they're engaging in action to have a greater understanding of the ramifications and the relationships and the accountabilities around that action. But of course, just learning isn't enough. We do need to act and we really hope that this film project plays a role in generating more and more action and building those communities of resistance. So two of the films are out. The first is available on your website and the second soon will be. What can you say at this stage about the third film? When people learn about colonization, decolonization, and learn about the history and learn about all of these different experiences, they want to do something. And so there's this rush to, what can I do? I need to do. I need to act. Part of the building of the series of films, really wanting to give people the background in order to become curious about how they can act. And this third film really will move into that space of the stories that have come from Liz's dissertation and people sharing about what could decolonization look like? What does that mean at an individual level? What does that mean at a systemic level, at a governmental level, at a level of nationhood, of living in Indigenous sovereignty? What does it mean to actually shift the way that we relate to one another and work towards a vision that is different than the one that we're experiencing right now? I would just add that completing this second film was very intense for all of us. And I think that we're looking forward to just a brief period of rest before jumping into working on the third film. But our vision, as Gladys said, is more around action and what does decolonization look like in practice. You have been listening to my interview with Gladys Rowe, Teddy Zagay-Gebra-Hewitt, and Liz Carlson-Manathera about the Stories of Decolonization film project. To learn more about it, go to storiesofdecolonization.org. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. 
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. <laughs>